Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbuck CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A light at the end of the tunnel. But how long is the tunnel and what lies between us and the light? Welcome to Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. New York went through what we thought was the worst of the coronavirus last spring. As hospital beds filled, intensive care units were overwhelmed, and the elderly died in nursing homes. Dr. Stephen Corwin was in the vanguard of trying to protect New Yorkers as president and CEO of New York Presbyterian Hospital, the leading medical center in the area. But as difficult as it was in March and April, there are some ways in which this new wave may be even worse. Last March and April, you saw really it concentrated in the Northeast and it was more sporadic. Now you're seeing this across the entire country, uh, which is worrisome in terms of how stretched we're going to be particularly on issues like staffing. Recall that when New York went through this crisis, we received help from around the country, uh, staffing help from around the country. That's not going to be available for many of the health systems now because we're seeing it across the entire country. Testing and testing reagents are going to be stretched uh, as well. Uh, So I think that it's, it's, it's somewhat different. Now, having said that, the demography is, is more favorable. Younger people tend to do better than older people. Uh, the mortality is less. The number of people requiring ventilators uh, throughout the country is less than when we first saw it and, and, uh, in both the March and April timeframe uh, and in the July-August timeframe in the, in the Southwest. So those are uh, somewhat comforting. I do think that uh, despite all the rhetoric around mask wearing and so on, that people paying attention to mask wearing, social distancing uh, has helped. 
So I think we're in somewhat better shape, but there are different challenges this go around. What kind of surges are you seeing in your hospital center uh, as a practical matter for uh, hospitalizations? So at the, at the nadir, we were at about 2% of our peak. Uh, now we're at about 10 to 15% of our peak, uh, and we expect it to go up to about 25% of the peak, depending on exactly what happens over the Thanksgiving holiday and then, of course, uh, Christmas time. So we are preparing for it. Uh, we do have adequate ventilators. We do have adequate masks, PPE, et cetera. We do worry about uh, the uh, number of reagents that we will have uh, for adequate testing. Uh, but I feel that we're in better shape than March and April. And we're hopeful that it will be uh, less strenuous than March and April for sure. And look, we have the, uh, the, the likelihood of uh, the vaccines uh, not only being approved, but uh, starting to be distributed at the end of December and January, and then hopefully ramping up by the uh, April-May timeframe. So you can see the goal line in sight if we can just get through the next few months. Well, okay, to follow that analogy, you see the goal line. The question is, how do we not fumble the ball in the meantime? Because there's some people who feel tired about wearing those masks you said help and social distancing. How long do we have to keep that up in your estimation before we really have effective protection from the vaccine? A few months. I think you're looking at the rest of November, December, January into February. Hopefully, in the February, March timeframe, you're starting to see widespread availability of the vaccine. And, and David, if I could put a plug in, we must insist on mass vaccination. The pain that we've gone through as a country, the deaths that we've had, the effect on so many different industries and businesses, We've got to insist on mass vaccination. We've got to make sure that we educate our population about it. I tell you, I would be the first in line for either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. Uh, I think it's been a remarkable accomplishment. And with all of the negatives about how the administration has handled this, uh, I think that Operation Warp Speed was a success. And the private sector really stepped up here uh, in a major way. This is the shortest time to get a vaccine uh, in, the, in the history of vaccines. It, it is really a remarkable scientific accomplishment. Uh, so, so doctor, the question now is how the baton will be passed from the Trump administration to what really everybody agrees is gonna be the Biden administration. What would you hope to see from a Biden administration that might be different from what you've seen from a Trump administration? Well, the first thing is I think this transition is critical. Uh, the initial distribution of the vaccine is, let's say, going to be uh, uh, 20 million doses or 30 million doses. Uh, if you require two doses per vaccine, you're only talking about 15 million Americans getting it. So the coordination between the outgoing administration and the Biden administration becomes critical so that everybody's on the same page. How is it going to get distributed? What is the IT system associated with this? What are the state allocations? Do the states have plans that make sense? How do you prioritize this? How do you make it equitable? Uh, that should be being discussed right now. Uh, and I know that you, you spoke to the congressman before. Yes, uh, the election needs to be certified, but we there is a clear winner here. And at the very least, there should be widespread support for sharing of information and allowing for an effective tr transition to happen. If it turns out that the president uh, actually won, which no one thinks is likely, okay, then there's no harm, no foul. But not doing this uh, handoff, I think, is, is really critical. As you said, 
Uh, you don't want to fumble it uh, when you're inside of the goal line. And we need an effective passing of the baton. That was Dr. Stephen Corwin, president and CEO of New York Presbyterian Hospital. Coming up, what it takes to put a White House together from the woman who was President Obama's senior advisor through his eight years there, Valerie Jarrett. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. One of the biggest issues in Washington these days is how we're going to get from a President Trump to a President Biden. We have a president-elect, but no transition has begun, at least not as of now, which means that the incoming administration can't fully get up and running despite pressing issues such as the pandemic. I have no budget. I can't do any of this until I'm sworn in or I can convince the president now to do things that should be being done already. I mean, there's hardly been a meeting uh, that's taken place in the White House about any of this. We welcome now someone who has run a presidential transition team. Before Valerie Jarrett served for eight years as senior advisor to President Obama, she was co-chair of the Obama transition team in 2008, all of which she wrote about in her book, Finding My Voice, When the Perfect Plan Crumbles, the Adventure Begins. So, Ms. Jarrett, thank you so much for being back with us. Really appreciate it. As I say, you've actually run one of these. You know what a gargantuan task this is. How much more difficult is it because we've been delayed at least some time getting it started? Needlessly more. Now, I will say, obviously, uh, his team is the president-elect's team has been assembled. They have been working diligently on policies and generating uh, staffing recommendations for the president-elect, both in the White House. He's already named his chief of staff and also in the cabinet. They go through the vetting process for that. But, but in the midst of a pandemic with millions of Americans losing their jobs, it is more important than ever that the agencies be available to the transition team. And I always say that one of the things that surprised me with President Obama's transition was the unbelievable degree of cooperation we received from President Bush. Now, we may not have agreed with him on policies, but what President Bush believed is in the smooth and orderly transition of power. And when President Obama uh, was leaving office, we did the exact same thing in his direction for President Trump, because this isn't about politics. It's about keeping our country safe, keeping it healthy. And if you think about, you know, there's been a focus on the presidential daily briefing that the president-elect isn't getting. But we have 16 different intelligence agencies 
and the team that the president-elect assembled should be in each of those agencies right now finding out the information that won't make it to the presidential briefing for another six months, but, but will need to be acted upon on day one. And so we are at peril. It's totally irresponsible. It's putting us at risk. And for what? There's no need for this. The election has been called. And even if the president wanted to pursue his lawsuits, that there is nothing that prevents him from, by the same token, going down a path for um, a transition. Well, well, sooner or later, there will be a transition. I think it's I'm comfortable saying. And it, we're here from some Republicans. They're starting to move in that direction that we're getting toward that time. Let's talk about that transition. And you referred to the team around the president. You helped President Obama really put together that team. You helped pick those people. When you're putting together a team like that, what are you looking for? How do you get a team together that is really consistent with your views, but at the same time brings a diversity of viewpoints? Well, that's something that's very important to the president-elect. He's made that clear that he wants a team that reflects the rich diversity of our country because he believes he will make better decisions if he's advised by people who don't just think like him. They share his values, that's important, but they have different life experiences and that began with the selection of his vice president. Uh, obviously, the uh, vice president-elect Harris, qualified, experienced, uh, track record of leadership, but she has a different life experience and he wanted to make sure that the last person who talks to him is somebody who he trusts, but doesn't always see the world the same way that he does. I'm not sure, Valerie, whether we've all fully absorbed the significance, the historic significance of that vice presidential pick. The first black vice president, the first Indian American vice president, first woman, as a matter of fact. So, so what is that going to symbolize for the country, but also what effect might Kamala Harris have within the White House? Well, I think she's going to be a powerful voice, and that's what he said he wanted, which I think reflects not only well on her, but also well on him. She's shattering very uh, glass ceilings of all kinds, as you mentioned, David. She will be a role model for people all across the country and the world about uh, the way, the new look of leadership. Uh, but she also is going to help him make really tough decisions and bring her life experiences to bear on that. And that's what he says he wants, not just as his vice president, but throughout the administration. Already the transition team is majority women. It's near-majority people of color, and so he's off to a very good start. And I think that you can tell a lot about a person by who they surround themselves with. And since I know so many of the folks on the team well, I am really impressed. I know that he will hit the ground running, but to return again, David, it would be so much easier if we had the full cooperation of the Trump administration. When I say we, I mean our country, because this is really about putting country first. Every new president comes in with a very full inbox, I think it's fair to say. But this president in particular, the President Biden, when he takes office, is going to have the coronavirus. He's got economic issues. He has a lot of issues domestically before he gets to international issues. At the same time, there are pressing issues that you really took some ownership of when you were in the White House. Things like racial justice, things like how we're dealing with working mothers who are particularly a hard hit right now. For example, here in New York City, as their kids are not in school, the working mothers have a very difficult time. What can the White House, what can the administration do without the cooperation of the Congress in those areas? Well, Tom starts at the top, and I think he's already signaled that his first priority is to get his arms around this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. He's already assembled a task force that's hard at work. We'll be making recommendations to him about steps to go forward to not only to contain it, but once we have the vaccine, to make sure that people actually get vaccinated in a fair and equitable way. Uh, he has always been an advocate for working families. And I think the 
pandemic has laid bare are challenges that have existed for a long time. Paid equal pay, paid leave, paid sick days. We know that women are suffering disproportionately in this pandemic. And that's why he said, when we build America back, we have to build it back better. So what are the levers we can turn as we craft a recovery package? And look, when he came in in 2009, President Obama asked his then vice president to be responsible for that $800 billion recovery act and make sure that the resources were going where they were needed most. And so he is well prepared to do this again. And in fact, his chief of staff that he just selected was the same person who was his chief of staff at that time. Uh, so he has got to, he said, the only way we're going to grow our economy is to get our arms around this pandemic. And I will say, sitting here watching it spiral out of control with no leadership coming from the White House day after day after day with reaching 250,000 people dead. Just think about those Thanksgiving tables where there are going to be so many empty seats in our country. And so, again, that's why this is a critical time as that virus is spiking. So, yes, he has to get his arms around it. And to the point you raised in terms of the racial healing and criminal justice reform, that's also a priority. But here's the good news. One thing I know about President-elect Biden is he can multitask. And his policy shops will be working on all of the issues that he articulated in his campaign to be true to his word. Thanks to Valerie Jarrett, former senior advisor to President Barack Obama. Coming up, the view from the Fed on how the pandemic may be changing the very structure of our economy over the long term. From Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. I regret to say that we're in the worst economic mess since the Great Depression. Together, we must chart a different course. We must increase productivity. That means making it possible for industry to modernize and make use of the technology which we ourselves invented. That means putting Americans back to work, and that means, above all, bringing government spending back within government revenues. And that was President Reagan in 1981, talking about the economic crisis he faced back then. Now we're facing a new crisis, a crisis born not of runaway inflation and high oil prices, but of a pandemic that may have farther reaching consequences on the way we work, the way we learn, the way we live, all of which are very much on the mind of Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan. So, so the irony is uh, we think uh, over the horizon, uh, 2021 is going to be a very strong year with GDP growth probably three and a half percent or greater, although the, a lot of that growth will be uh, in the back half of the year. The, the challenge is, as you mentioned, is getting through the next six months. And we're seeing resurgence intensify all through the country. And we're seeing mobility and engagement uh, fall off in those places where the resurgence is affecting or threatening uh, the health uh, healthcare capacity, hospital capacity. If that continues, which it looks like it is continuing, you're going to see more and more cities uh, fall off. El Paso is an example. Wisconsin, Chicago, Utah, Colorado. We're all seeing that kind of mobility engagement fall off, which indicates growth will slow. And so uh, it, we'll we'll have to see what the fourth quarter looks like. We it is possible we could have negative growth if this resurgence gets bad enough and mobility falls off enough so that local officials, even though they don't, they don't want to do more restrictions, they don't have a choice. So the next couple of quarters, 
is going to be very challenging. The, the, the good news is over the horizon, things will get better, but we, we've got to get through the next six months and we've got to do more on mask wearing, social distancing, because a vaccine will help us eventually, but it's not going to help us get through the next three months. So negative growth and for a couple of months, that adds up to a recession, as, as I understand it. So you're, you're not ruling out that possibility. I'm not ruling out. If you'd asked me a month ago, I would have said we're going to grow in the fourth quarter as much as four or five percent annualized. But I think with this resurgence, um, uh, I think the risks are all to the downside. The, the only good news, if there is a, if there is negative growth and the rebound stalls, uh, we our own view is it'll be temporary. It'll last for a quarter or two, but it's a possibility. At this point, might that prompt Fed action? Could you, for example, increase your bond buying, or is that just not the right response to the problem we're looking at? I don't, I don't know if that's the right response. I do think it's critical that the 13-3 programs, these uh, public market backstop programs uh, and programs like that support Main Street and the PPP, that they continue beyond year end. I think that's very important. Uh, I, I, I would continue our bond buying at the same pace that we're, we're buying. If we needed to, if this got bad enough, we could extend maturities, but I wouldn't increase the size. Uh, but I think there are tools we have and we're gonna have to watch this very, very carefully. So you said maybe three and a half percent GDP growth in 2021, back end loaded, or better, or better, yeah. fair enough, or better, but back end loaded. Is that entirely contingent upon an effective vaccine sometime in the middle of the year? Yes, it is. And so what we're assuming as our base case is we'll, we'll have a good vaccine or more than one vaccine uh, by the end of this year. But the first order of business is going to be to immunize about uh, 20 million healthcare workers in the United States. That could take up until, say, March or April. And then in March or April, uh, our expectation is that uh, you'll have broad dissemination, but it'll take a number of months to get the, the population inoculated. So we're going to spend a good part of 2021 socially distancing, mask wearing, but the back half of the year uh, is going to be better and uh, w better times will be ahead again, but we've got to get through, we've got to get through the, a very difficult period first. And that's where our focus is right now. And then the news of these two or three promising vaccine candidates really encourage, I think, all of us to believe what you just said, that we will get through it, although it's going to be hard between here and there. When we get through it, what will be the long-term changes, do you think, to the very structure of our economy from the pandemic, or will they go away? So we're going to have a number of issues that we're going to, that we're going to have to deal with. Number one, uh, technology and technology-enabled disruption was a fact of life pre-pandemic, and the pandemic has accelerated it. Uh, people are now even more comfortable shopping remotely, working remotely, and just conducting their lives differently. Some of that will swing back, but I think some of it will not. Uh, you could see in the future less business travel. You'll see reconfigured office space, maybe less office space for some companies. That was Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. 
It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. To wrap up the week, we welcome now our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, great to have you here, particularly because at the very end of the week, we had a fair amount of Secretary of Treasury action there. One of your successors took some action. Secretary Mnuchin wrote a letter to uh, the head of the Fed, Jay Powell, saying, please give us back that money we gave you for those emergency lending facilities. And you had something to say about that. In fact, you had a tweet in which you said Secretary Paulson, referring to Hank Paulson, another predecessor, uh, understood in a transition it was his job to help the Fed and the incoming administration establish a basis for strong cooperative efforts to contain the crisis. Secretary Mnuchin has done just the opposite. So uh, drawing a contrast between these two secretaries, what is going on here, Larry? I think there are two separate points. One, uh, every previous government, I mean, there was plenty of bitterness in the Bush Gore campaign. Really, there was. I mean, we all thought that election was stolen. But it didn't occur to me or to anyone who worked with me or to any other cabinet officer in the Clinton administration not to cooperate fully in helping the government be ready to do whatever our successors wanted to do. The last thing we envisioned doing was thwarting their ability to carry out uh, their policies. What Steve Mnuchin uh, did in writing uh, that letter and making those demands and reducing the authorization was thwart uh, what it's clear an incoming Biden administration wants to do. So that's just wrong on process terms. The second problem is it's just incredibly imprudent and reckless at a time when the pandemic is getting far worse at a time when we don't really know where this pandemic is going to go before a vaccine, at a time when we don't have any basis for being confident that there's going to be agreement on fiscal stimulus, to tie the Fed's hands in any way to constrict their abilities to act in an emergency is the height of foolishness. Why would you throw away a potential insurance policy? Nobody's asking Secretary Mnuchin to trigger anything, to pay any money, to authorize any checks that he doesn't want to. But preserving the capacity to insure against financial Armageddon, it's elementary that that's the right thing uh, to do. It's elementary that it's the right thing to 
due to facilitate a next administration being able to do what it thinks uh, is uh, is wise. Uh, I've been surprised by the secretary before, but never uh, more than this, which really does seem to me very much outside the tradition of the office he holds. So this is a transition that at some point presumably will be over. And then at the same time, there are longer term issues at play here. And just this week, Bloomberg had uh, the new economy forum that you appeared on with Janet Yellen, the former Federal Reserve chair. And one of the subjects was actually, are we saving too much? And are we really in secular stagnation? A term that you really revived some years ago. And she basically totally agree with you. This is part of what she had to say. Central banks need to do what they can, but then not overstate um, what it's possible for them to do. Well, I strongly believe central banks need to be independent and need to do everything they can. The changes they've made, they're not a game changer from the point of view of secular stagnation. And bottom line, I agree with Larry on what's, what's required. So there you go, Larry. Things have changed some from the first time I think that you issued that paper some years ago when you were sort of an outlier, I think, on the subject. But that leads to the question, okay, if central banks can't fix this and we're in secular stagnation, what do we do about it? What does it mean for longer-term economic policy? It means we're going to have to rely on fiscal policy rather than monetary policy uh, to stabilize the economy going forward when we have cyclical fluctuations. And it means more generally that an important part of the design of policy is going to have to be assuring that savings are fully absorbed. Because when you have excess savings and there isn't investment that absorbs that saving, that's when you get interest rates on the floor. That's when you get the savings flowing into purchasing existing assets leading to financial bubbles and leading to huge degrees of leverage. That's when you get lack of, lack of inflationary impulse and an inadequate uh, inflation relative to uh, the targets. And that's when you get the sluggish growth that leads millions of workers to uh, be left behind. This isn't a phenomenon of the United States. It's a phenomenon throughout the industrial world. Nowhere are interest rates at anything like the levels that would have been regarded as normal. And nowhere is there any market judgment, if you look at longer term interest rates, that they're going back to normal. And so we've got to move to a, a very different paradigm that is not that an undisciplined central bank is going to create of inflation. It is not that deficits are going to crowd out private investment. We're going to have all this savings and we can't absorb it. And that is what central banks need to be saying. That's what political leaders need to be understanding. Right. Keynes talked about this time ago, both in substance and have to understand the basic economic forces to do the right thing. Which leads us naturally to a quick lightning round of Summer Says, because one of the questions is the stimulus. Are we going to get stimulus, and how big does it need to be? It should be more than a trillion dollars, and it's odds off that we'll get it before the uh, inauguration, unfortunate, unfortunately, because of transigence on uh, both sides.
So odds off that we're going to get it. It should be more than a trillion dollars. Let me flip, take the flip side of this argument for a second, which might surprise you. We've had some people like Martin Wolf from the Financial Times this week writing about the possible recurrence of inflation, actually. If we get the vaccine and things bounce back, is there any chance that, in fact, we could have the reverse of your problem and actually have inflation by the end of 2021? Of course, there's, by the end of 2021, I think it's pretty unlikely, but anything's uh, possible. But, you know, mathematicians have a phrase, this reduces to the previous case. If we found ourselves with an overheating economy and we had to raise interest rates and the Fed was important again and it was no longer pushing on a string, that would be really good. (laughs) That would be a much better situation than the kind of profound long-term sluggishness that has led to such disillusionment um, around uh, the world. One of the things that Martin Wolf was talking about, actually, is whether the demographics might push us in that direction, because, in fact, we have a, a diminishing labor force in places like China, as well as the United States and Europe, and that might actually increase the pressure on wages, which goodness knows could be good and could help address some of that inequality problem that we've certainly been facing in the United States and that President-elect Biden has committed himself to trying to address. Great to have special contributor Larry Summers with us, as always. Finally, one more thought. A one-man stimulus package for booksellers. Like all retailers, booksellers have not had an easy time of it since the pandemic hit last spring. But this week saw what could be a turnaround with the publication of President Obama's memoir, A Promised Land a 768-page tome that is making a splash like few other books have ever made, with an initial printing of 3.4 million copies for North America alone and nearly 900,000 copies sold in the first 24 hours. It may not be the first of its kind. We've come to expect these from our former presidents, but it may well be the most popular presidential memoir of all time, which can't come soon enough, particularly for the independent bookstores around the country, which the publisher says are reporting particularly strong sales. As much demand as there is for President Obama's memoir, it still has stiff competition in the eyes of critics. Competition from the unlikely source of our 18th president, Ulysses S. Grant, who wrote what most historians agree is the gold standard for presidential autobiographies. Like President Obama's, President Grant's autobiography was immensely popular, helped no doubt by his publisher Mark Twain's marketing genius in employing Civil War veterans to dress up in their uniforms and go door to door to sell it. Like President Obama, President Grant wrote his book out longhand, fighting through his terminal cancer to finish it just before he died. And like President Obama's book, President Grant's was a huge commercial success, earning the equivalent in today's dollars of $13 million. And we can only hope that President Obama's autobiography bears one other similarity to that of President Grant. For Ulysses S. Grant's two-volume memoir was published in 1885, during the third longest economic downturn in U.S. history. But it was a recession that ended when the memoir was published. Even as we cross our fingers that our current economic recovery can continue despite all that we face. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. 
But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.